to the Insomniac Show with Nicolette and Brian. We'll get real deep with you. Educating, inspiring, and solving problems with some of the most inspirational humans on the planet. Buckle up and come on the journey. I'm excited. All right, guys, I'm Nicolette, and today Brian and I are here with Tina Bakehouse, and she is a chief communicator here to share some uh, insight into speaking and storytelling with us. She also lives on a farm, which is really cool, so maybe she'll tell us a little bit about that after. And uh, we really appreciate you. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming to chat with us. I'm excited to be here, Nicolette. I'm excited to meet both of you, Brian, too. All right, Dina. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to to speaking and communicating and storytelling. Was this something that you always wanted to do? Was this a passion you always had? I was the little girl that grew up on a farm and had a Brown Fisher Price tape recorder with a microphone with that big orange sponge on it. And my front porch became a proscenium stage and I would create talk shows, reenact the Muppet show. I am a kid of the late seventies, early eighties. And I also just crafted all kinds of stories and scripts that I would rope my younger brother and sister into that we would perform for friends and family annually, especially for my parents' wedding anniversary every year. And so I had this love of creating and performing and just of the spoken word. And as I grew up into the world of high school, I did high school speech and theater and college as well. And so for about 20 years, I taught communication and public speaking and all things of how do you perform and present with confidence, with clarity and with authenticity. So I taught at the high school level for a chunk of time, got my advanced degrees taught at the collegiate level for 10 years. And after that, I decided why not explore, try something new and a nonprofit created a job for me to promote the arts in eight counties here in Southwest Iowa. And after I did that for almost a year and a half, I got a little burnout and explored the idea of working for myself. I've been doing this side gig of coaching and doing workshops for 10 years or so, but I went to my local bank and said, Hey, how can I help you? And they said, we'd like to hire you. Would you like to be our storyteller for the town and help with economic development and community development and education? So I did that for two years and the international pandemic came in and I realized that I'm called to do one thing and that is to help people communicate effectively. I don't think people realize who don't live in small towns or never live in small towns, how important it is to actually tell the story of a small town to even bring people in to come live there or visit or whatever the case is. It's huge. It is absolutely huge, particularly in rural areas Mm -hmm. where stories are so much more memorable. You have to have some sort of identity. And that's what I love about my little small town of Malvern is that it's artfully growing and that we have the art church where an artist left, got trained in Arizona and then came back and he's attracted some other artists to come into this really small community of about 1100 to have multiple little art galleries. We have a wine room that's open opening up. We have live music and food every Saturday throughout the summer and a beautiful Wabash trace biking trail that goes through the town and some fun places to eat, to connect with each other. And so it's sharing that story because that story has stay power. We can share all the data in the world, but stories resonate and people remember them more. It brings out the human in us. Now, you mentioned you you taught different levels. So from high school to the college level, and then eventually 
I'm assuming more in the, you know, adult, fully adult uh, level. Do you notice any common themes there um, amongst those, those different groups when it comes yes. to teaching, uh, you know, this kind of skill? Absolutely. I think at the core that confidence and lack of confidence can, is, is there. You know, whether you're a preteen who's finding themselves, figuring out who they are, being awkward, all things that we know happen our freshman year of high school, to being an executive. I've coached CEOs of big companies at TEDx speakers and everybody in between, managers, middle managers for smaller companies, nonprofits, for-profits. And the, the streamlined thing that I have found is that we get in our head a lot. And when yep. we get in our head, we have these weird tapes and we, we get the monkey mind going of, ooh, am I, am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Are they judging me? All these crazy thoughts come through our minds and that affects and influences how we show up, what kind of poison presence that we, we display. So I've always really worked with whether you're a young person trying to formulate who you are, what's that authentic speaker style to, you're a professional that's been in the business world forever. It's finding out who am I? defining that and noting that poise is a verb and presence is a noun. So it's the work that you do with your voice, with your body, with the content is the poise piece. And the presence is that state of being that once you know that you're able to show up as that person and you know who you are. Do you think some people are naturally more like that than others, right? Some people, it's just easy to get out there in front of people, talk or tell a story or share themselves. And is it because they're not worried about I'm being judged or whatever? Is, is it just more natural for some people? That's a good question. So I do think that there are some people that just gravitate to it more as a talent, as a skill. And so guess what they do? They do it more. So when you do it more, it becomes a lot more comfortable and you're much more at ease. I mean, there's this, I'm, I'm certified in Kiersey temperament. And so temperament really plays a big hand in about 50 to 60% of who you are affects mm -hmm. how you work, lead and communicate. So we, as human beings, use tools and words to reach our goals. And the way we do that is different from the person next to us generally. And so whatever is natural, you know, Brian and Nicolette, you both feel very natural and at ease to have conversations with people. You just show up and you just organically let it happen, but you do it a lot also. So there's a part of you that your temperament is called to do that. That's where you get your energy. You light up when you're around people potentially, but other people, they have to work at it a little bit. It's not that they can't learn to do it, but they have to work at it and it's taxing on themselves in terms of being around lots of people or presenting because both extroverts and introverts can be very engaging communicators, speakers, and connectors. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of advocating for yourself and knowing what you need to take care of yourself so you can be effective. Right. Or you right. just be like me and not care what everyone, anyone thinks of you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And I think yeah, that that's wonderful. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've always been that person too, where I haven't cared what people have thought. I mean, I, I still rollerblade and my, I'm in my mid forties and I probably look silly as heck with rollerblading through towns and stuff in small town, Iowa, but I don't care. I'm having a great uh -huh. time waving at people, talking to people. And when I show up into a networking space, I wear my bright purple blazer and a big smile and I just show up and put out that energy and, and connect with people. That's, that's part of who I am. And I, and the theatrics come out, I'm enthusiastic and I'm a creative and I'm kind. And I know those things about myself, but I think you're right that there are some people who naturally just don't go to that headspace and worry. They just be, 
And, but I do think the people that do go to that headspace and worry, they can choose to be and get into that mindset and be trained mm-hmm. because there is a way to reframe and retrain your brain. So do you think it's so, cause you know, a lot of us, you know, who do speaking or things like that, you, you go into that zone or that flow state, like when you start, right. Is so for people who it's not more natural, do they need to sort of get into that? Okay. I'm going on stage and now I'm going to perform or I'm well, going to. Actually, Brian, I want to actually, I have a question that, that's going to tie into that because it's about preparation almost like, like for those people who are not natural at it, do you think that preparation then gets them into, let's say that flow state and have being better prepared? Maybe they can't do it as well off the bat, but with the proper preparation, could that boost their confidence to give them that, you know, what Brian's referring to? First of all, I love that both of you used the word flow. That's one of my favorite. I mean, I've read about the theory of flow and I collaborate with two people that are researchers in that area, in flow and it's a, a, sta- a skill and a state of mind and right. athletes get into it when yep. they're in that sport. And I do believe that speakers and communicators can get into flow. So I want to address that question, Nicolette, and that is uh, there are three things that are in your control. And what I think freaks some people out And I don't think Brian or you are one of those people or me is uncertainty, just not knowing. And so there's three ways to which I think that you can get into a better, calmer, stronger, authentic self to show up in your best way to communicate effectively. And the first is preparation and preparation comes with analysis of who's your target audience, to whom are you speaking? What is your desired outcome or purpose for which you're talking? And what is the context? Is it a big, is it in the big auditorium, a keynote experience? Is it a workshop in a conference space? Or is it in the basement with some older, you know, adults where you're speaking to church women, you know, or, or, or a group of community uh, youth at a library? So all that matters. And, and knowing that context audience and your desired outcome and preparing for that is very important, as well as knowing how you're going to start knowing how you're going to end and having clear, thoughtful points in which you connect with your audience and be audience centered. And the more you prepare, the more you'll feel confident and competent with that information. The second piece that's in your control that can lessen that uncertainty is the practice. And I really believe in this. You know, think about the, I met a pianist years ago and she was just amazing at playing without any music. And I had a conversation with Joyce Yang and she said that she spends eight hours a day practicing and only takes three days off a year. Pretty Mm -hmm. intense, right? But she's amazing at what she does. She takes it very seriously. And I know that that rule of 10,000 hours, right, of, of what you put in and invest into something. And so for every minute that I have a presentation, I prepare an hour and I practice and I put into it the rigor because I take it very seriously. It is, it is a sport and it is a passion for me. And so the practice, your speaker ritual, how you engage in the material, the research, the conversations, you know, I talk about the things that I'm learning. So it's in there, it's in my head and transfers to my heart so I can share it out. The third thing that people can work on in addition to just preparation and the practice is the pause. And that is when you do get that moment of nervousness, you have more control over your body and your breath than you ever can imagine. And so when you take that moment and you take that beat and you take that pause, you will then be able to get back into the space and get back into connecting to your audience. Now you mentioned, you mentioned in their ritual, right? So is there certain, you know, now ritual, some people like they'll sit there and they'll pace 
Do you know what I mean before they go on? Are you talking about those type of rituals too, like to get people into the right zone? Yes. I have speaker ritual and I, it starts, you know, with the day before for me until the end of the presentation. Mm -hmm. So it's all in how you prepare. I think about, I mean, I was in athletics in, in high mm -hmm. school and in college and think of the stuff that they eat and how they rest and what they do yep. and how they warm up. You know, for me as a speaker, all those things, taking care of my physical body, my mental body, my voice is also very important. Taking care of all those things, but also realizing, you know, the content needs to just trust myself. I need to get into that headspace and heart space of trusting myself. So I make a re real ritual of being done with the content, not looking at my notes by noon the day before. And I'm like, I've looked at it enough. I presented it enough. I feel good enough. Right. And then I always make sure I eat a light meal that night before I get to bed early. I get up early the next day, do yoga and physical activity is really good in terms of movement beforehand. So when you see people pacing, that's actually a really great thing to do because your physical body is really getting warmed up and it's, yep. it helps that calming factor, but also warming up of the voice and taking good care and not doing dairy products. All of those things matter because you have to take care of yourself so that you can take care of your audience. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, same thing. I grew up as an athlete and, and still am to some degree, right? And, you know, there's all these rituals. And it's the same thing. I go through that same sort of ritual state, you know, because I think what happens too is you also go, okay, you've only prepared, you know, what you point out, you prepared, right? You prepared as much as you can. And now that's 90% of the work. And now it's just showing up and accepting the outcome for whatever the outcome is going to be, you know? And I feel like once you know, you're going to just accept that outcome, you're going to do your best. You're going to accept your outcome. It releases your mind of worrying about what's what, you know, oh, am I going to mess up or but, something? But, but wait a second, but what if you're not prepared? So I want to bring up Brian because Brian doesn't prepare that much when he, when he <laughs> is ever speaking in front of anyone. Right. Yeah. But, but he's no. always, you know, but it's always a great job. So you know, how does that, you know, does that play into like some people are just naturally a little bit more better on their, a little bit better on their feet, right? On their toes in the moment, you know, they don't do as well, maybe when they prepare or they, like, how does that play a role then if, if you're going out there unprepared? Cause I'm, I, I get it. Like, stop looking at everything, right? Stop looking at everything. You're as prepared as you're going to be, but what if you don't prepare? <laughs> what if you don't prepare? Well, and I, I feel like, you know, this is something I think there's a place for obviously, you know, I, I'm trained also in improvisation where it's yes. And is like at the core, you come with a yes attitude and then you add something to it. And there's definitely a place for showing up and just thinking off the cuff and being organic. Like for example, in an interviewing situation, being somewhat prepared, at least knowing, you know, whom am I interviewing and what's the core of what we're talking about, but just showing up and asking questions and actively engaging and listening. So what I noticed already with the two of you is you do listen to what I say and you build that next question mm -hmm. from what you've heard. If you weren't fully present and in the moment, then the interview would be poor. So you don't have to do as much work if you are accepting the situation for what it is. There's a lot of perfectionism out there and a lot of perfectionists. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have let it go in terms of, okay, Dale Carnegie said there's three types of speeches you give the one you prepare, the one you give, the one you wish you would have given. And we, I laugh at that because, you know, you always think about, oh, I should have said that, or I could have said that, or this was a good idea, but it's, I love that 
you know, I can tell just from your energy and the rapport that the two of you have, not only with each other, but your guests, you just, you let things organically happen and you release of that control. And so I think when the stakes are high, like if you were to give a TEDx talk, if you just showed up and winged it, they would be <laughs> PO'd, okay? <laughs> they would not dig it and it would be obvious. So you would probably, because you have to do under 18 minutes. So the context for that situation is you better be prepared. In fact, my my most recent client, I got to see him present a TEDx event, which was so awesome to go to a live event. Uh, and he had to memorize. And for the first time, he's like, Tina, I don't think I can memorize this. I'm like, dude, just, t- just share it to the cows. Present to the cows, record yourself, listen to yourself in the tractor. It was, and he goes, I did it. And it really made a difference. And so it's, it's, it's knowing the context. It's knowing the situation that yes, there are definitely times where you don't have to prepare, but there's other times that you absolutely should when the stakes are high. And if the expectation is that the output, you know, if you're speaking at a huge summit for internationally for 5,000 people, you should probably have some, some of your people <laughs> probably have an idea of what you're going to say. <laughs> yes. You should definitely have an idea of what you're going to say. So there's a healthy, happy balance, right? Because if you know what you're going to say, like, you know, those key points and you know how you're going to start, you know how you're going to end. What I think is great is what let the heart go to, you mm-hmm. know, allow yourself to deviate for a hot minute because I'm in the moment for this audience. They need to hear this. And that's a good, cool thing. And I think to, to Tina's point, you know, you've done the 10,000 hours, right? Usually in whatever you're talking about, you know, you're, you're an expert usually at whatever you're presenting on. So, you know, once you do the hours, you know, the, the work on the other end gives you the ability, right? Once you build the foundation, the work on the other end gives you the ability to, I'm going to use Tina's words here, but speak from your heart, right? To really have your passion come out versus going, here's the memorized, you know, 15 bullets I need to hit, right? Because you've done the foundation, you know what those bullets are like it's instinct almost that's at a certain point when you've done something for so long that you're basically going and saying okay this is why i love it and that's what comes across you know that's what i love like i love when i see people get even if it's something i'm not excited about i get excited seeing people get excited about what they're talking about because i'm like oh my god this is awesome, you know, like, cause they're excited. You know, you can get happy for them or even just in the moment, you know, even in yes. their moment, you, you, well, you it's can. that postural echo. That's a nonverbal form, right? You lean into it and you mirror each other, which is a beautiful thing. And mm-hmm. that's how you connect with each other. And absolutely. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that because what I've noticed is now for the last, you know, 10 plus years, I have certain content areas in which I've been teaching, training, mm-hmm doing keynotes, branching off keynotes off of, and because I've been reading rigorously about it, talking about it, not only in in front of formal audiences, but in conversations with people, it's in there. And what's great is I let the moment happen and let the in there come out there. And that's when it becomes really awesome. And the passion really shines through is that you are able to just allow the moment to be, and you just be. Mm -hmm. So then what is your advice then for those who don't have the hours yet? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people who, you know, let's say you've got a new job or something and you have to do a presentation or, you know, even something that small can be very intimidating for, for people who are just kind of getting into that. So how do you tackle something like this when you don't have the years of experience under your belt, right? And you haven't been living and breathing it for so long where it's a part of you. How do you exude that confidence then? It's to just get started. I think about the summer of my eighth grade year where I had this dream in the school. I'm going to make varsity basketball, girls basketball. And this was back in the day when it was Iowa six on six. 
and you were a forward or a guard. So I wanted to get really, really good at my left-handed layup because I could trick the guard. And so every day that whole summer, I did left-handed layups three times more than I did my right-handed layups. And my mom would flash that light and come in, come in, it's late, it's after 10 o'clock. But I, it was in that rigor of, of first setting the goal. And that goal is, okay, I know that I need to communicate and I need to present. And so you first need to set a concrete goal. Of, I'm going to do this. And you make that game for yourself because I'm competitive in nature. And so I did this during the pandemic for, for the first time I was doing keynotes virtually. And the first one really freaked me out because I get energy from people. And when all of a sudden I have an audience of 200 people and I can't see or feel them all. And I'm looking outside my panoramic window and I see goats and trees. That's really (laughs) bizarre to me, right? It doesn't feel natural. It feels not organic. It doesn't feel authentic. But what I did is I, I made this game for myself and I did five one hour sessions on Facebook live teaching how to be an authentic speaker. So not only did I share content with people to help them, but I was helping myself along the way. So it's first create the game that you need to do that, that goal, set that goal and just start doing it and start small, start little, maybe it's going to a chamber networking event and just start talking to people you don't know that breaks down that barrier of the unknown and the uncertainty and gets you more comfortable. Then it's maybe reaching out to some professional friends say, Hey, can I practice with you on Zoom or in person? Get that going. I mean, I even practice my presentations with my mother and mother-in-law, and I used to do it with my grandmother too, where I just saying it out loud and getting some feedback from people who love me and are supportive no matter what warms me up and gets me in the mode. And then it's, then it's making a goal of, okay, do I want to do a mock story? Do I want to do a TEDx? Do I really want to do a keynote and create that signature talk and then set a goal for actually doing it. And mm-hmm. so then you you see a, you see your steps along the way, but it's just getting started, getting practice. Now you mentioned a couple of times like physical things, like you know layups. Do you think athletes have uh, uh, an advantage? It's part one of the question. Part two, do you like? I'm a true believer in sort of mind and body, right? Like you need a you need to be physical as well as mental. Because I'm a very physical creature. Do you think that helps also in in speaking? Absolutely. 110%. So I have found that the physical physicality, and I'm a mover, I'm a goer. I have this Vata energy, very wind like, and, and love to go moving fast and quickly. And so when I feel that little bit of butterfly formation going on, which is normal, but it doesn't go out of control. I actually make time every time before a talk to go on a really rigorous walk outside on the farm with my dog. And I say the speech and I say the beginnings and I say the things and it feels good. It's that movement. There's actually research out out there that's getting outside, getting movement actually enhances your creativity. It enhances, it clears your mind and it's getting away from all the gunk and the junk. Uh, And so absolutely, I think getting that mindset of physical movement before and the, the speech, whether the day before, the weeks before, but right before actually mm-hmm. gives you an edge and getting to present even more effectively. All right. So hit us with your top speaking mistakes. I really want to know mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on this. What do you see that people are constantly I don't want to say doing wrong, but doing wrong, right? And and maybe how can we fix them? 
I have three top mistakes I'm going to share. Okay. The first is verbal fillers. They're uh, the vocalized pauses. And those are the ones that, and the one I've noticed for the early nineties, like was the filler like this, like that, you know, like I'm not hearing like as much as I'm hearing the word. So, so blah, 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 blah. And so the thing that you have to think about when you are wanting to say something, you need to ask yourself, when am I doing the verbal filler? How often am I doing it? And why? Is it because I need a transition and I don't know what I'm going to say? Is it before a big idea? Is it just I could where a pause will do? And to me, the pause will do. And we are just so eager to fill the air with noise that we clutter it and we clutter it with vocalized pauses, whether it's the ums, the ahs, the you knows. But so has become one I hear a lot more frequently. Think about what you say, how you say it, and bridge that gap with a pause or a fluid transition. And that leads me to number two, transitions. Signposts and transitions are not used ever enough. What I have found is people think, yeah, I'm just going to wing it in the body of my speech. And what you have to note is that you are the verbal map for your audience. You want to keep them in the know. The moment they have to think about Where's the speaker going? They have shut down. They have stopped listening. They are now hearing your wah, 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 like Charlie Brown, but they are not understanding or comprehending the message. You need to transition, give internal and internal previews and internal summaries. For example, when you say, when you're ready to transition into a new idea, I might give this particular example uh, today I've been talking and focusing on you have to first know yourself. Mm-hmm. That's an internal summary. Now I'm going to move into this new idea of being able to know your team. That's an internal preview. So you want to sum up what you've said, preview what's to come. Signposts are also when you go on a road trip, do you jump in the car and just go aimlessly? Maybe. But if I know I want to hit way up to Lake Mackinac in Michigan, it would not be effective or efficient to just jump in the car and head north. It would take me forever. I need signs. I need to see exits. I need to know where I'm going. So I look at the map to get the whole picture, but I also use a GPS to kind of support that. You need to do the same with your voice and with the content of your message. Signposts are words like three things I'm going to tell you today. First, second, third. That's an example of noting where am I at in my talk? Your, your audience will thank you because they need that, that device to know where you are and where you're going. They're not reading it. They're hearing it. The other piece, another signpost is saying things like a marquee that says, listen to this most importantly, or if there's nothing you're going to take away from this talk, take this away or, you know, those kinds of words and phrases. Mm-hmm. More importantly, those will indicate what's important. The third is I've really noticed that people are poor at how they start and end their talk. Okay. Think of a hourglass that they should mirror each other. You start broad with a really good hook and then you get really narrow into what is your talk about? You should do the exact reverse, start really narrow, remind us what your talk is about. And then in broadly, like a really cool, you know, poignant pal, if you will. So know how you're going to start, know how you're going to end. I think stories are beautiful, embed them in the body. But that first hook, the first thing you should say is not, hi, my name is Tina B. I'm here today to talk about. That's not great. 
What's much more powerful is if you dive in, I'm 10 feet away from Ellen Alda and I'm freaking out. I'm going to tell you, a story. you know, so you dive into that story. All of a sudden you're like, Ooh, I want to know more. Peak the curiosity, whether it's a story, a startling fact, a rhetorical question, engage the audience by, by a show of hands. How many of you, Bobby, Bobby, Bob, mm-hmm. same with the ending End powerfully. This is your opportunity to lay out a challenge to the audience, a perfect utopian vision, a cool personal reference or story, something to get us to think so that we have that advocacy statement for what do you believe? What do you care about? And don't end with thank you, unless you're doing TEDx, that's their kind of rule because the audience should be thanking you for your information and your time. So an example of that might be after I tell a story at the end of the day, in order to be effective, you need to connect with each other. You need to be together so that you can communicate for results. Stop, pause, and say, what questions do you have for me? You know, so that that's the, those are the three things I would recommend is work on those verbal fillers. Know, know when and how, and all, how often you do them. Think about signposts and transitions. And finally, how do you start? How do you end hook at the beginning and have good, powerful pal at the end? I feel so educated right now. You are really captivating, I must say. <laughs> Thank you. I really must say. I, I have one question, though, before we go. Do you still have the recordings from your Fisher-Price uh, as a kid? <laughs> you know what? My mom does, I think. And I, I found a tape or two. And what's funny is I can't get rid of a little cassette tape because I'm like, I want to play these. And I actually have tapes of me interviewing my grandfather when I was a junior in high school for my sociology project, which he's passed away. So that's pretty cool. And I did some interviewing projects for grad school. So I have another set of grandparents where I interviewed them, but yes, I do have some of those. And my mom has saved them, which I'm grateful for because she is a saver and I tend to toss out, but those recordings, they were some cheesy radio talk shows, all things random, uh, and, and I would make my brother and sister, the poor kiddos, wear costumes that I had designed in my beautiful seven, eight-year-old mind <laughs> and beyond. But yes, and I, I, rec- I really recommend people recording themselves speaking because you catch things and you also, it's a good way to practice your speech by hearing yourself, even though it seems awkward and weird, it's really a great form of practice as well. If you're driving to hear yourself on record for your keynote. Those are some great, great tips. And, and, you know, I did get a chance to peek at your TED talk, TEDx talk. And I think what I, you know, and when I watched it, really what it was is a giant lesson, you know, I think in, in speaking, because I think it's worth a watch, especially um, if anybody, although the topic is not about communicating and, and speaking, the way that you present the topic, and I believe it's agriculture and, and things like that. Um, it, it just, it's a really great lesson. And I think some, something that everyone should watch if they are interested in actually uh, speaking the way you do. Well, thank you, Nicolette. Yeah, it was about ag arts and I was doing work on the farm teaching people where their food comes from. My next goal is to do a communication focused uh, TEDx. I just have to find that inner talk. There's just so many pockets and bubbles Mm -hmm. out there of things I'd love to talk about. Well, please let everybody know where they can learn more about you and anything else that you're working on right now. If you want to send us there, please do. Absolutely. So tinabakehouse.com is my website. You can get lots of really great communication, helpful insights. I have videos there as well as a a blog. I write heart to heart. I have a connection with a gal 
several hours away that she reads my stuff on her radio program. So that's a lot of fun to write stories to help you communicate more effectively. And you can get that newsletter as well with the, with the tips and with upcoming events. I do occasionally virtual webinars and my hope is to get started here September 10th. I'm doing a flow retreat actually here at the farm, Ooh. teaching flow and communication. So to be continued on that front. And my hope is to really get some more storytelling events where I bring people's stories out and we share them together. We learn and connect together. So tinabakehouse.com and my YouTube channel is Effective Communication with Tina B. You can also follow me on Facebook, Tina B LLC and Tina Bakehouse LinkedIn. Lots of places to find fun rooftop chats because I get on the top of my rooftop and talk about ideas, possibilities about communication. Thank and you we so got to have you back on Tina yeah. to talk about storytelling. So absolutely, I love fun. that. We, we, we went awry, but thank you so much. We, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.